The Numero Group was founded in 2003 as an archival record label that specializes in creating compilations of music from various genres, as well as reissuing original albums. Rather than the traditional label process of finding and promoting new talent, Numero finds and promotes music that has often fallen out of the public eye and ear, sometimes for decades. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we shine a spotlight on the Numero Group and speak to one of the artists whose recordings they brought to light after 30 years. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Ken Shipley of the Numero Group. Ken, welcome back to the future of what? Thanks for having me, Portia. So nice to talk to you again. Our past episode that you were on was like one of our most listened to ever. People are really freaked out. So you're like a you're like a future of what superstar. Is that something to be proud of? I mean, sometimes you, you have to wonder whether the <laughs> things that you're saying are things that people want to hear or things that people want to cringe while listening to. I've certainly been known to make comments that I'm unwilling to walk back despite perhaps better business interests <laughs> saying, saying otherwise. Well, I think anytime you can say something that strikes people as really interesting is good. You know, I don't think it's necessarily bad or good. It's just exciting to get people's juices flowing and thinking about something in a new way, which is what you did. So that's good. You know, for me, I, I feel like I think about the business constantly and just where the business is going and I'm not a nerd to the past by any stretch of the imagination. I constantly strive to figure out a way to bring a business that specializes on music that's 60 to 30 years old very much into the present and operate in a very modern capacity. You know, whether that's through creating better systems or using technology to our advantage, you know, I, I don't want to be left behind. And I feel like it's Sometimes you can see the writing on the wall a lot clearer than other people. And just the ability to be able to say, you know, have a, a platform like we have to be able to say, hey, here's some incongruities that we're noticing. And maybe other people should start thinking about this stuff now and stop pushing it under the rug for a later day. Absolutely. Well, today, what we're doing, the reason we have you on today is to have basically a label spotlight on Numero Group because you guys have been around for a while now. You've done some really exciting stuff. And we also wanted to put a little focus on the fact that you have three nominations, the Libera Awards this year, including Label of the Year, which is, I think, pretty exciting. You guys are no strangers to awards. You've already been nominated in the past for multiple awards, including Grammys and all sorts of stuff. But I just wanted to talk to you and get a sense of what was the impetus for starting Numero? You guys are not a normal record label. You're not a record label like Kill Rockstars. You do something that's very different. And I think you guys do it particularly well. So what was the impetus for getting started? Well, I was working at this company called Ryko Disc, which was the first people to really pioneer the compact disc in the United States. And I was 23 years old and they had just lost David Bowie and Elvis Costello and were on the cusp of losing Nick Drake. And they tasked me with trying to rebuild a catalog with almost no money that could perform as well as, you know, these three really iconic artists. And I came in and I surveyed around to see what would fit their mind and their model. And there just wasn't anything there. There wasn't anything that I think would have been a really valuable asset that they could ultimately turn into a David Bowie or, or something that of that ilk. And so what I ended up doing was presenting them with a lot of options that were really small and really cheap, but also kind of cool. You know, I was looking at things like Rhino Handmade and saying like, you know, there's these really deep catalogs out there that are that are valuable. And instead of trying to get a superstar, let's let's get some some people and, and build them up from the ground. And so I worked at Ryko Disc and I pitched a lot of projects there and they said no to basically everything. <laughs> and they got bought and 
well, they, they restructured the entire company and the result of it was that I no longer had a job. And I had all these people that I contacted and I was like, you know what? I'm going to find a little bit of money and I'm going to do this myself because I think that there's a, a grain of a really interesting idea here that could turn into something. And I was inspired by the free jazz label Actuel, um, Verve, the, the, the gigantic, you know, impulse Verve, orange spine, and that iconic way that sometimes when you walk into somebody's house and you see like a Black Sparrow Press book and you can see it from across the room and you know the kind of person that you house that you just walked into, you know what they're about. And I, I wanted to deliver that same idea, but with records. And that's really like, it was an idea of like, let's take some old things, let's take some iconic branding and, and maybe meld the two together and make a library of really interesting music. I think it's so fascinating. And the reason, I mean, I'm just going to be super clear for listeners, you know, it's a label like mine, we go out and we try to find new talent, right? That people haven't, other people haven't found, you know, we sign young bands, we try to break bands, we are firmly entrenched in sort of like what's happening right now in whatever scene we're interested in. And a lot of labels are like that. A lot of indie labels are like that. But what you guys are doing is so fascinating to me. And I'm kind of jealous, in fact, honestly, because there's like so much curation involved. And I think that part makes it sound so fun because you guys have these big ideas. You know, you have like categories where you're like, oh, here's a category of music that has been ignored for 30 years. And then you get to go in there and sort of pull out the best of it and put these compilations together and bring this music back to light where it had been sort of, you know, forgotten. Yeah, I, I think you maybe simplified it because you feel like it's really hard to struggle in the environment where there's so many indie labels trying to sign so many things. And, you know, there is a really competitive marketplace out there. And for us, it's a completely different kind of thing because I think that the locating of dormant copyrights is actually quite easy. The promotion and execution of that is much harder because we don't have the ability to say like, hey, go out there and work this record on the road and find yourself some fans so that, you know, we can we can help sell your record. We, we don't have anything like that. You know, so everything that we do is a lot more labor intensive to get the music to people's ears. And that took a really long time to get a fan base that would, you know, blind buy records no matter what we put out. That, that was something that, you know, took half a decade to put together. And we're struggling now with the changing retail landscape, which is far more favorable to major labels and, you know, major indies than it is to sort of boutique operations like ours. And, you know, and the same thing applies on Spotify or Apple Music, wherein you have, you know, major indies and major labels dominating playlist world because they're able to hire people to get in and, you know, put those tracks in the right playlist. And so everything that we're doing is a lot more organic and it's a lot more about kind of creating our own ecosystem within these other larger ecosystems and trying to be less reliant on, you know, on, on having to kind of like break through traditional channels. We don't have a radio department, right? Like we don't, you know, like we, we, we've foregone a lot of really traditional things because we found that we would spend this money on them and it wasn't actually working. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so we just, we really were like the, the best thing that we could do was to sort of pull ourselves out of the business in a lot of ways and say, hey, look, this whole other world that's going on like has nothing to do with what we're trying to do. So don't even pretend that we're in that world. Just be ourselves and let the customers and the fans find the records. And what's so fascinating about that is that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, 80s in particular, you know, when I was a kid, record labels really had an identity, you know, and it's like if you bought records on SST, you were going to be like, you were probably going to buy whatever came out on SST because you trusted them as a brand. You know, you were like, SST is a label that I trust or touch and go or, you know, alternative tentacles or whatever. And I feel like with the rise of digital, that has diminished to some extent. You know, I think people have a little bit less brand loyalty to labels and more interest in, you know, the music itself or perhaps the artists, whereas you guys are kind of at the exact same moment doing the opposite thing and building brand loyalty for your customers. Yeah. I, again, like that was a, a plan from the beginning, which was to create something that was easily identifiable and that you knew that you could trust it. And, you know, I, I grew up 
buying SST and touch and go, not so much alternative tentacles, but you know, there were a lot of labels, like a sub pop, you know, that, that you, you would follow what they were doing because they, you knew that maybe you weren't going to love it, but that it was going to be interesting. And that was wildly inspiring to me as a kid buying records and, you know, and, and a teenager buying records and a young adult buying records. And so when Rob and I got the company together, when I was around 25, all that stuff, you know, it, it was just part of the story that led up to doing what we were doing and really like saying, like, let's step outside and make this about being sort of like we own an art gallery and we're bringing paintings in that we think are interesting that people should look at. And in this case, listen to. And I, I agree. I think that a lot of label identity is, is being purged right now because there's not a great way within you know the consumption model of music for people to to really latch onto a label and say, I like this. And so a lot of what we've been trying to focus on is looking at Spotify and saying, again, let's create our own ecosystem within their world. So if we can't get on a bunch of their playlists, let's make our own playlist. Let's let's get people to come and join our world within their world and, and really, you know, show people that there is really interesting things happening in the digital music sphere. And it doesn't have, you don't have to be on a Digster or a Topsify or a Spotify playlist to, you know, to actually get streams. And, you know, right now it's interesting because like we have probably the number one girl group playlist on Spotify and it's just because we're just active. Mm -hmm. Like we're constantly feeding it with things that aren't necessarily all numero tracks. A lot of things that we put on, you know, like I just hear something really good and we'll put it in there. And then you mix enough cool things that we're doing with just amazing stuff that is done on a major label or a major indie or, or whoever. And all of a sudden you've got a, a really interesting listening experience, which is ultimately what the end user wants, you know, and our hope is that in creating all these sort of subgenres and playlists and things like that is that we can become a, a dominant force in catalog so that when people think about, you know, Oh, I want to, I, I need music and I need it for this specific mood. And I think numero has what I need because they're really good at putting things together. And, and that's how I, I, I hope that we're going to be able to traverse this, this eventual climb from buying vinyl and CDs into a, a consumption model, which I, I think is inevitable right now.
That was Cruel, Cruel World by Jackie Shane. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Ken Shipley of the Numero Group. So even though you guys have put in a ton of work and love into sort of the physical design element, you know, I was just, I just hosted a panel during Design Week in Portland on the aesthetics of album art. And I totally remembered when I was a member of the Rough Trade Singles Club. Yeah. And I would, I would get those singles in the mail and they all had the same blank cover, basically. Little box with the number on it and the, the font. They were using like a Helvetica on the cover and they had that, like they'd use the photo. And the, yeah, all those were just geniusly kind of put together yeah. so that you had them all. Yeah. And then you you didn't know what the band was going to sound like, but you were so excited when you saw the packaging, you know, because you're like, I loved my last one or whatever. I loved the last six that they sent me. And and so it was, it, the packaging itself was really iconic and had a lot to do with the experience. And I feel like you guys have replicated that, but you're looking ahead even further and thinking, you know, to a time when that's not going to be as relevant. Well, I, I think that there will always be some relevance for physical. It's just diminishing, right? right? So 10 years ago, we could put out a record and sell between 10 and 15,000 copies of it without breaking a sweat. And now those numbers, they, they, they dive every year just a little bit. And you start looking at the writing on the wall and thinking, it's just like, it's going to be really difficult to be able to afford to make this type of high-end stuff if there's no real avenues for people to buy it because retail is not bringing as much of it in or because people are shifting to a consumption model. So what do we have to do to take our brand and shift it into the future? And you know, I, I look at physical and it's like, it's, it's not a profit center for us anymore. I would say that our physical business is largely a break-even business and it's, it's become much more of a marketing tool than it is, like I said, a profit center, which is not something that I ever expected to happen. I mean, I love the craft of making records and making beautiful things. I don't know that that's a sustainable concept in the long term. That's so interesting. Yeah, because it's been touted now. I mean, I feel like it's always interesting to talk to you, Ken, because I feel like you're like always a few steps ahead. You know, because right now I feel like everyone in the industry, everyone else in the industry is like, oh, vinyl is so strong. You know, this is great. Like, we're doing great with vinyl. And you're like, eh, you know, vinyl's going down. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's that the vinyl boom is not raising all boats, right? right? So all boats are not raising at the same at the same speed. If you're Universal and, or Warner Brothers and you've got a massively deep catalog of classic hits – of course the vinyl boom is going to be great for you because you're going to be this, this like vinyl tourist that's walking into a record store to have, you know, an experience unlike one that they normally have only really cares about buying things that they know. They're not there to get turned on to like whatever weird we're working on. That's not for them. You know, that's not for them. That They don't know about us. They don't even want to know about us. And it's not that I don't want them to know about us. It's just that there's no avenue for discovery because the majors in a sense have looked at retail as an opportunity to just feast, mm. right? You've got the best catalog, you've got the best distribution, and you're going to, you know, record stores, they're not elastic, right? There's only so much room in the bin. So if Led Zeppelin puts out nine remastered double LPs that are half an inch thick, all of a sudden the L section has <laughs> got a lot fewer other titles in it. And so we need to be able to look at, at retail and say, you know, they've been a friend and maybe they'll be a better friend in the future. But right now, I don't know that they're really helping independent record labels because there's just no space for us and there's no space for us to compete. And I lamented it and I was angry about it for a while. And now I'm sort of at a point where it's not like F them. It's more like we'll find another way. Right. And that's what great innovative businesses do. Right. Is that they look at something and say, like, there's there's a problem here. How do we fix that problem and how do you know, like, and, and just start trying a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And maybe it, works, maybe it doesn't work. You know, like I'm willing to make mistakes to see if we can find a better model for what we do. And I don't anticipate that any other indie label is going to follow us down the paths that we're willing to go. But I think that we've been really successful in the streaming sphere. We were way out in front of sync and I have a feeling that, Vinyl is not going to get better for us. It's just going to get worse. 
So rather than invest, you know, like last year, I think we invested $900,000 into creating records or something like that. And it's like, that's an extreme investment that has an, like almost paltry return. You know, the ROI is, is almost non-existent on that. Whereas our sync business and our streaming business have like a very, very small investment that have an insane ROI. Right. You know, looking at the numbers, you're like, we're putting good energy into something that actually doesn't grow our business. How do we put that energy into something that will? Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's like when I discovered comedy albums, I'm like, my God, the overhead for a comedy album is tiny compared to what you have to pay for putting a band in a studio for a week or whatever. And the return is massive comparatively. So yeah, it's interesting. I look at like, you know, like that shift that you've made from being like a du jour indie tastemaking label to sort of looking at it and saying like, there is another way. And this comedy thing ends up being, you know, kind of a lifeline. And you made a, I don't know if it was an effortless turn because I'm not behind the scenes, but from my limited vantage point, I feel like it's been a, a great growth moment for Kill Rockstars to sort of reinvent itself as something that it didn't know it could be. Mm -hmm. And that's to me, like always the businesses that you want to watch, right? Yeah. Is those innovators, those people who are like kind of willing to look at the world and say like, this isn't going to be sustainable. How do we, you know, how do we survive and then thrive? And like, I know I really applaud that sort of shift that you made. I wouldn't have expected it, you know, from a person who bought, you know, WordCore in <laughs> 1991. You know, I, I don't think that that I would have been able to look at that and said like, you know, but there, but therein is the thread, right? Is it's like right. far off is that's WordCore the thread from a comedy album. Yeah, it's not really that far at all. No, and that's the thread exactly. But you guys, I mean, that's what's so fascinating about you guys is is the innovation. I mean, you you guys did something real interesting last year when you did the pop up store tour, sort of taking your inventory to the masses rather, you know, because that's the exact problem that you were just talking about. Retail doesn't have the shelf space for all the stuff that you guys can sell. So we have 350 unique products. So what record store in the world is going to carry 350 records by any record label is, is preposterous. But at the same time, you know, we just did one in Brooklyn this weekend and it was insane. We had a line out the door on Saturday. It was butts to nuts all day. And, you know, we probably made more money in the five days we were open there than we will all the rest of the year selling at New York retail. Wow. And that to me is just like, it's not a problem with our records. It's a problem with the delivery. Yeah. And so it's like, if solving it means that we have to load up a truck full of records and show up in your town, we'll do that. I don't know how, for how long we're going to do that, but, you know, we're certainly looking at, you know, like we're going to take it to Europe and, you know, we're looking at, you know, just more sustainable ways to be able to do those types of things without wanting to kill ourselves uh, <laughs> because they are like really valuable in terms of like figuring out who the customer is and what the customer wants. And like, they're out there. They want this stuff. There's just, you know, like not everybody is a kid like you or me who got a mail order catalog and was able to, you know, throw $13 into an envelope and send it off and wait four to six weeks or something to show up like that. You know, not everybody has that kind of trust. Not everybody even grew up with that sort of mindset. And now that the Internet like, yeah, Amazon has made it feel like you can put your credit card into anything. But there's still people who don't even know how to find the things that you're doing because they have no idea how to even look. Right. And, you know, the fascinating thing about doing a pop up store, especially, you know, on Franklin Street in Greenpoint, is that we had people pouring past and being like, I know that logo. What's this? They had no idea. They never got the, they're on an e-list. They don't follow us on Instagram. They're not following us on Twitter. That Facebook is a joke. So there's no, you know, like there's, it's so difficult to reach anybody right now, like to take it to the streets like that was more effective than anything that we could have done in a social sphere by any stretch of the imagination. Like, you know, like when you're serving a thousand people in, you know, a few days, that's a gigantic, I mean, like think of the last time that you ran a campaign that you even got a thousand impressions that resulted in a sale. Right. Just, yeah. 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 You know? And, and so again, like, are these all good ideas? Of course not, you know, but you've got to be willing to try sort of anything if, if you want to succeed. And, and the thing is, is that like, I have a, 
an enormous wealth of great people around me at the company who can take a, a sort of outlandish idea and figure out how we're going to employ it. And again, lots of bad ideas don't get employed uh, and a few bad ones do, but you know, uh, we've been lucky enough that I, I sort of guided the, the good ones through with my partner, Rob, and made something happen that has really changed the face of what we do. And I, I hope that like we can continue to do things like these pop-up stories because I believe that it is the antidote for the time being until, you know, we figure out what's going to happen with physical in the long run. Right. Absolutely. was Midnight Rendezvous by Amethyst. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Ken Shipley of the Numero Group. Well, let's shift for a second to talk about the Libera Awards. You know, I, I'm a little biased on this one because, you know, it's kind of... Are you? 
my uh, <laughs> my baby. But <laughs> you love your own children. That's weird. Children, I know, right? But I do think it's it's certainly grown into something. It's kind of grown into a monster, which makes me really happy. And it's very out of my hands. And also, I've been completely kicked out this year. I'm not allowed to be on stage. I didn't know that you were on stage. Oh, yeah. Do you give them out? I give them out. Yeah, that's... I've, You're the person who gives them out? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I feel like perhaps you've gotten one from me. <laughs> I've never accepted an award. We, we have been nominated for a lot of awards over the years. I think we've been nominated for 10 Grammys. We've lost 10 Grammys. We've been nominated for Liberia Awards in the past and never won. And then a bunch of like other packaging awards and things like that. I think we won some packaging awards in the UK for something, but it was like, are we going to spend $2,000 to fly over and maybe win an award or maybe lose an award? Right. And so go, but I, we won one year and then somebody else went up and accepted on our behalf. But yeah, we're not winners. <laughs> sort of like perennial losers. And I, I sort of anticipate, you know, I, it's, I, I just think that what we're doing is not known enough to really be voted on by people who are in that business, unfortunately. Like, I just think that like, it, there's a greater chance that like our sister label, Dead Oceans, is going to win label of the year than a label like Numero because one, you know, like if you look at the labels that are in A2IM and, and we are, there's not a lot of reissue labels. Like a lot of our peers aren't even in there. The light in the attics of the world, the music from memories, like they're just, they're not, they're not even members. So you start thinking about the voter pool and it's just like, it's always a thrill to be nominated for things. But I think we have a very realistic expectation about winning and also knowing that like awards are kind of not what's important to us. And, you know, like they don't affect our, 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 our business in, in any way. I mean, it'd be lovely to, to sort of be recognized by our peers. But, but again, like sometimes I wonder, you know, how many peers we actually have. Well, and that's a really interesting point because, you know, we've never had a reissue category until this year. And now you guys are nominated in it. And, you know, I think that is the kind of thing that might actually help bring a light in the attic or, you know, other reissue labels on board. I, I hope so, because I think that the organization is, is really valuable. Let's talk about the album that's nominated for two awards because it's the Husker Du reissue. It's a reissue, but it's also uh, sort of a rarities and very special collection of material. And it took you a long time, right, to work on this record? Yeah, it started in 2010. Yeah. And I had been doggedly chasing the band. I think in a, in a lot of ways we got really cocky around 2007 or eight or something like that. And we were just like, let's make a list of challenges. Like how do we challenge ourselves to do something that people have always said was impossible and then figure out how to do those things. And so we made a list of those things that like, what if we went after the X? And one of those things was like, what if we went after who's could do? Because the, the band had been notoriously like, you know, their catalog is very underrepresented in this sort of reissue field, but also really well-respected as, you know, they're probably a top 10 indie band of the 80s. And so we looked at that as, as a challenge. And I'd always loved the band. And you know, I grew up listening to them. I, you know, I owned at least three copies as an arcade. And it was kind of like, I wonder what it would take to do this. And so we tried going through a couple of like legit channels, like going through management and things like that. And finally, you know, we stumbled onto this guy, Terry Katzman, who was the, their sound man and sort of the band archivist. And he was like, here, like, why don't you just come up to Minneapolis and meet with Grant Hart? And so he set it up and we met in this closed hotel bar <laughs> and had a conversation. And then he was like, cool, let's go for a drive. And then we ended up driving around Minneapolis all day and going to the lake where New Day Rising's cover was shot and swimming in that together and, you know, like having like creating a really great rapport with one another that blossomed into a, a great working friendship. I, I don't think that we were like great friends, you know, like we didn't know tons of personal things about one another, but we had a, a mutual respect and I just kept popping into his inbox for years and saying like, hey, like still interested. And this, you know, like the band, a, a bunch of legal things happen that super boring, don't want to get into it, probably shouldn't get into it. And like, essentially, like we heard through the grapevine that they were about to do a deal with somebody. And I was like, how is that even possible? Like I've been chasing this for years and like to find out. And then I found out that they, the band all of a sudden they had a manager. I was like, well, let's get in touch with the manager. So I got in touch with the manager and I was like, listen, like, 
blah, 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 blah. I've been, you know, trying to do this thing. Here's what we do. And he's like, Dennis Kowalski, who's their manager, was like, holy shit. Like, I didn't even know about you. Nobody even told me, which was kind of funny because it's like, you know, after harassing them for so long to not even be on the list, you know, when they started shopping for labels. Anyhow, we put a proposal together and we were like, let's let's do it. And within four months or five months, we signed the deal. And, you know, and I dove headfirst into this, you know, massive archive of tapes we rescued a lot of things that people didn't even know still existed. The band's entire tape archive had been sitting at their attorney's office and it had been totally forgotten. And we got in there and we're like, here it is. Here's here's all this amazing stuff. And then working with Terry Katzman, who was their tape archivist and live sound man that I had mentioned, you know, he opened up his treasure trove of things. And then all of a sudden it spiraled into this really incredible project that we went and worked with the museum in Seattle that used to be called Experience Music Project, which is called Mopop, I believe now. That's right. You know, we, we, they had, they bought in Grant's archive and then, you know, the, the Minneapolis Historical Society had bought in Greg's archive and, and just, you know, then we started getting into like, well, who photographed them? And it was just like, you know, we, we really dragged the lake as it were, mm-hmm. and, you know, the most amazing bits that, could be represent and represent this early period of the band, which is, you know, the only period we could work on because of the SST thing, which is sort of an ongoing project. But yeah, it was just, it was like a labor of love for me that ended up being this, you know, it was a huge success. We sold a lot of copies of it. And, you know, I, I imagine that as far as like punk box sets are concerned, it, it's certainly in the, you know, the, the upper echelon of, of, of those type of things and by a band that I, Again, like I think notoriously people thought that this would never happen, that they would never work together again. And, you know, that's how good I am. Yeah. <laughs> that's how good humor is. You know, like we're good at getting people to to work on things by just being really good at, you know, doing the things that we say we're going to do and working with, you know, it's like, like, I, I think a lot of times when you work with an artist, they have ideas and not all of them are good ideas. And nobody says no, because in the indie world, it's like, oh, well, they're the artists. We have to say yes to everything. And, and to me, it's just like it's about it's about creating a collaborative environment where we work together and say, like, OK, look, here are your ideas. Let me figure out how I can bring them into a world that feels really elegant. And so, like, just thinking about that with Grant and, you know, like the fonts, you know, like how like we out we argued for hours about the fonts. But in the end, you know, we like it all came together. And, and that's the type of thing that, like, I think was really great about working on it was that it was a real collaboration of their style and our style. And, and we made something really beautiful as a result. Yeah. And you managed to do it before Grant passed away. And I mean, the album didn't come out until after he'd passed away. But, you know, you got to work with him all that time. And that's really that's got to feel really special. It was like a thing that I'll sort of always remember for my life is just like, you know, as, as a, almost a bit of disappointment in it, not being able to get it out before he passed on, because I know it was really important to him. And if we could have bought three months somewhere else, I certainly would have preferred to have it out before he left. Yeah. And it just didn't happen. Yeah. Well, good luck on that one. You guys are up against my Elliot Smith reissue and, you know, we can both cry on each other's shoulders when we lose to Radiohead. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I mean, you know, I've lost radio before, so yeah. uh, I don't, I, like, it won't be anything new. It'll for just me. be it the same be, old. It'll be new to me, though. I'll be mad. <laughs> well, I mean, how many things have you been nominated for in your life and won versus how many have you been nominated for and lost? And then you look at that sort of like, you know, Venn diagram of winning and losing and then, you know, try to feel good about you know, it's like you, you just get used to feeling that way. And then like, and then it just becomes normal. To okay. You. So, All right. You're, you're tr- trying to make me feel better about my loss in advance. It's not working. <laughs> I, mean, I always set myself up way in advance for the loss. <laughs> you know, as soon as you're nominated, you, you prepare emotionally and mentally. Like every time I've gone to the Grammys, other than the first time, which for some reason I had the delusion that I would win. <laughs> you know, I've always been like, there's no way we're going to win some don't worry about winning. Like, let's get high and have fun. And then like, you know, if we do win, we're going to give a super ridiculous speech. (laughs) And also just a number, uh, just something that I heard in an amazing speech once was this guy basically say like, the worst thing about the Grammys is writing a speech, not winning, and then finding that note in your pocket when you take your suit to the dry cleaners. And (laughs) Like, because the thing is, it's, it's like, there's kind of nothing worse than reading an acceptance speech for something that you never accepted. Oh my God. And so, uh, 
don't write a speech in advance. Okay. That is a piece of advice. Like take it from the heart. Maybe just collect your thoughts, you know, in the hotel room before you go. And then, <laughs> and then go in raw and just expect nothing and then, and have fun. Good advice. Good advice. Well, Ken Shipley of Numero Group, we always enjoy talking to you. So thanks for being with me again on the future of what? I will come on this show anytime that you want me to. Woohoo. We're on. was You've Got a Woman by Lion. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Andre Gibson of Universal Togetherness Band. Mr. Gibson, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you very much, Portia, for having me. Absolutely. So today we are doing a spotlight on the Numero Group, and we wanted to talk to you because, of course, your story is quite extraordinary and special. Do you want to tell us how you came to know about the Numero Group? Oh, that, yeah, that's, that is a special story. <laughs> we were basically just laying across my bed watching TV, and I get this call from John Kirby who's a representative from Numo Group. And he asked me, he said, wait, we found some video footage of your band from 
back in the late 70s, early 80s, and we'd like to know if you were willing to do a project with us. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and there was this club called Copper Box 2, which was a very popular club back then. And they had this TV show and all the local artists and everybody pretty much that was in the industry, entertainment, that had performed there. So I said, yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing led to another. They asked me to come down to the studio. And, and John asked, hey, we got this one track, and it's pretty cool. We wondered if you had any other material. I was like, do I? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I went to my garage and pulled out those master tapes that I had purchased back 35 years ago and dusted them all and took them down to their studio. And John and, and Ken and, and Rob were just like, Man, this is exactly what we're looking for. And that was, that was the start of something good as far as my relationship with Numero Group. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Now, your story is, is very interesting because you recorded a lot of that material for free, right? Yeah, we did. I was one of the first students in the Columbia College here in Chicago Arts and Entertainment Management Program. Mm. And they had a course for sound engineering. And, uh, you know, back then, my band was playing four nights a week and all the clubs around town, and and they needed a specimen. So <laughs> we said, hey, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> and the sound engineering students were like, oh, you guys are a good test. We'll record you and blah, 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 blah. And so with all the recording that we did, you know, we purchased the master tapes of everything that we recorded. Wow. And yeah, it was free and it turned out to be something that was valuable. That's amazing. Now, I understand that you had had a record deal potentially at one point, but it, it didn't happen. And so therefore this music actually was never released prior to the Numero Group, right? Correct. Correct. Wow. Uh, we had, our manager was, Aaron Stern, who turned out to be a very good associate of Leonard Bernstein. Mm. But he he got us involved in the business side of it. And our manager was Antoinette Stern, his wife. And we were negotiating a contract with Mercury Records when they were located here in Chicago. And we were very, very close to a deal. And... You know, Mercury decided to move out to L.A., mm. <laughs> you know, so, so that kind of left us, you know, high and dry as far as artist development. You know, they were going with their name acts, and that's where the money was going to be focused on and promoting. Right, right. So after that happened, how long did Universal Togetherness Band keep playing? Oh, we we played around for at least another three, four years, Mm -hmm. you know, doing local spots. Back then, there was a very large live entertainment community going on in Chicago. A lot of venues that offered live entertainment, uh, the club. So we had a lot of work Mm. that we could still do in spite of the record deal. But I I just continued to write the the, uh, songs. You know, that Universal Togetherness Band was one of the only bands in this area that played all the original material. We would play three sets a night and never played the same tune twice. Wow. Wow. And that's, that's how much material we were writing and trying to expose to our audience. Oh, my gosh. So you guys were truly a treasure trove to Numero Group when they got a hold of you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And it's been a good relationship with those guys. They have, you know, actually brought a lot of the material to the forefront. I couldn't believe how well it was received over in Oslo, Norway, and (laughs) Seoul, Korea, and, and, and Japan, you know, I've got DJs right to this day hitting me up saying, hey, man, we played your stuff at the club <laughs> last night. And we couldn't believe that most of the people in the club knew the lyrics to the songs. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's been really exciting. 
That's fabulous. That must feel so good after 35 years to have people loving your music. It does. And and it's inspired me to continue on doing what I do. I, I still do solo projects. As a matter of fact, I just released a, a little thing called Another Place out on CD Baby. Ooh. And it, it it keeps me involved with songwriting and producing. And, and that's that's my passion. Wow. Do you think you'll ever get the band back together? We've talked about it. We've <laughs> talked about it. And uh, a few of the players that were in the later, there was a, a few personnel changes. And uh, one of the bass players has since passed away. But, you know, I've, I've talked to them about possibly doing a UTB return. <laughs> Matter of fact, I even got... I've even got all the artwork set out, you know, wow. to, to run past numero group if they decide they want to do that. It's oh, just, wow. Because there were some tracks that they didn't get that we used to do on a regular basis as far as our repertoire. And uh, I kind of went back in and, and retweeted them a little bit. So if we do decide to get back together for a reunion project, those would be some of the tracks that we would like to put on vinyl. Wow. Well, I can't wait. If if you do that, I got to find out because I got to come see you guys play. I would love that. Oh, oh yeah. Thank you very <laughs> much. I, I was just listening to a few of your other episodes and you have a very interesting program oh, going here. Thank you. I listened to the episode on the death of downloads. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of scared me a little bit because I just invested in a bunch of download cards. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but it is what it is. Uh, they'll, they'll go for my new project. And also the state of songwriting, which was a very interesting episode. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you listening. That's kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, best of luck. And I'm so excited for your newfound success 35 years later. Thanks for being on The Future of What. Thank you for having me on your show. And big ups to Numero Group. (laughs) Absolutely. Take care. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Jackie Shane, Amethyst, Lion, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.